Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Colony Drop, your favorite Gundam podcast. My name is Isaac. And my name is Brian, and this is a podcast where we talk about anything and everything related to the Mobile Suit Gundam franchise, Isaac. From the anime, to the music, to the movies, to the models, to the food, to the clothes, you name it, we do it all. And today we have a very special episode that's near and dear to both our hearts. We're going to be talking about what, Brian? We're going to discuss and review Mobile Suit Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory. Wow. That's got to be in your top three series, right? I don't remember what was on your list, but it's up there. Yeah, I was watching it now, and I was like, this is actually top top of the list. This is this first place. It can't be beat. Oh, all right. Yeah, for a number of reasons. Let me explain, listeners. So back in the day, <laughs> in my millennial youth, <laughs> this was the first Gundam I saw. It came on an Adult Swim on Cartoon Network, and for some reason they just had 0083. They didn't have the original series, so I had no background information on it. This is how I entered into Gundam. And just watching the intro, you know, with the laws and Abaku and, and Gato and all that, I looked at the animation and I forgot how amazing it was. It's all hand-drawn, and it holds up, doesn't it, Brian? It does. I was saving this for later, but dare I say, Isaac, that this series has the best combination of animation and mecha design out of all the series. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. it. It's so crisp. It's so detailed. This has everything going for it. Even the music's great. I listened to like the intro song for like the first three episodes, you know, without <laughs> <did> skipping. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do the saxophone noise? <laughs> oh, no, I can't. I'll embarrass myself. <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> exactly like that listeners <laughs> yeah saxophones were so big back in what's this from 1990 1991 <laughs> yeah. and two yeah please listeners please record your version of the saxophone piece of the winner yeah. and send it in <laughs> <laughs> not to say it's so old but the soviet union was still around when this series aired because <laughs> the soviet union didn't collapse until like 92 so yeah. that's how old the series is but it's so well drawn and so detailed it holds up. It's a great story. I had a blast rewatching this first half. So Isaac, it's only a 13-episode OVA series, uh, but today we're going to only talk about the first half, so episodes one through seven. But there's a lot in those seven episodes, Isaac. I wrote down quite a lot of things that I noticed and just wanted to talk and ask you about. Absolutely. But before we get to that, so the particulars, Isaac, as always, this was released as an OVA series, so one or two episodes every few months. From May of 1991 through September of 1992. I believe the only way to watch it right now is to buy it on Blu-ray officially. But if you just Google it, I'm sure you can find it. It's not very well hidden, <laughs> as uh, as most Gundam <laughs> series are not. I have the official guidebook out. Okay, hit me with it. This epic story bridges the seven-year gap between the events of the original Mobile Suit Gundam storyline and Zeta Gundam. The plot revolves around a Zeon group that has been lying low since the end of the One-Year War, waiting for its chance to renew the fight against the Earth Federation. A young Federation officer who's always dreamed of piloting a Gundam gets his chance at last, but he finds out the hard way that with such a responsibility and against such enemies, the job is no picnic. Wow, that that's kind of an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. If you watch the whole series at the end, can you imagine some officer just kind of like putting on his cap and going, man, that Operation Stardust was no picnic. <laughs> it's like, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> Maybe that could have been one of the other subtitles of the compilation movie. Mobile Suit Gundam, double eighty three. that was no picnic. Yeah, this ain't no picnic. <laughs> so again, this is a 13-episode series. However, Isaac, it was compiled into that compilation film that we watched. And it goes by many names. 
the last blitz of Zeon, the afterglow of Zeon, or the fading light of Zeon, and now that that was no picnic. <laughs> so, so listeners, we may by accident bring up some of the same points as we did last year when we talked about that. However, I think Isaac and I would like to erase that film from our memory just because it was not very good. Yeah, I was like watching this and then, you know, I was in like episode one or two and my brain was kind of like, didn't you just see this? And then I continued on through like the seven episodes in the first half and I was like, this is so much better than that movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> we go into so much more detail. Dare I say the and it looks better at some points. <laughs> and yeah, it just felt like such a much better series. Like I at the end of episode seven, part of me was like, you know what? This doesn't feel like I'm watching 13 episodes. It feels like I'm watching a very long movie. Yeah, I I do feel like, and I have to check this. I'm not sure if the episodes are longer. I don't know if they're TV size. Perhaps they're each, you know, 30 minutes instead of 22 or something. So that that could could be why it feels a little, it feels like you get a little bit more for your money in these episodes, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And even the kind of slow episode, I somewhat appreciated it more i don't know why maybe it's aging or something bernina and co kind of have like their romance episode or whatever mm-hmm. yeah and just as someone that really likes the gundam lore this filled out a lot of things uh, we got to see a lot more luna we, it's, it's so rare to see luna's life yes. right mm-hmm. so we got to see how they apparently at the stroke of 6 p.m they decided to turn off the lights <laughs> so it's time for night i was watching that and i was thinking you know shouldn't they <laughs> For people's like internal clocks and circadian rhythm, shouldn't they gradually adjust the light? <laughs> nah, <laughs> just the nope. switch. <laughs> yeah, we're cutting those lights. Everybody better get ready before you get plunged into darkness. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Isaac. My notes are mostly in order, but I'm sure we'll jump around as always. So right. shall we jump into it? Let's do it. Yeah. Do you want to give them a rundown of one through seven and Operation Stardust first half? All right. So I think at a high level... This Remnant Xeon fleet led by Aguil Delaz, the Delaz fleet. Probably one of the best characters in the show, Isaac. Yeah, and may I just say, that's a great uniform. (laughs) (laughs) It's looking sharp. (laughs) A lot lot of sharp dressers in this show. (laughs) Pay attention, everybody. Gato's got a cool outfit. Shima, you know, uh, it's it's great. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's why Isaac liked it so much, because him and his love of uniforms, you know... (laughs) Is this the part in the show where like it cuts to me like wearing a uniform in front of my computer? <laughs> yes, don't you dare deny it either, Isaac. I know you're dressed in full Delaz regalia right now. Oh yeah, I'm just counting the days till I lose my hair so I can <laughs> shave it, grow goatee, and just go full Delaz. <laughs> um, he's been waiting three years, and he this is his plan, Operation Stardust. But first, what he needs is he's going to steal a Gundam. So he sends in an ace pilot from the One Year War, Anavel Gato, also known as the Nightmare of Solomon to steal Gundam Unit 2, which is a tactical nuclear you know, version of a Gundam. It has this giant mm. nuclear warhead in a bazooka. So Gato kind of waltzes in to Torrington Base in Australia and kind of just steals it right out from underneath the Federation's nose, right, Isaac? I mean... <laughs> it's good that the base commander was killed in combat <laughs> because he would have been court-martialed and executed anyways for letting just anybody in a uniform walk onto base. <laughs> there, there were no guards at that hangar that had Unit 2 and the nuclear weapon. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we'll get into the nuke. But So basically, after they steal it, they then have to escape, right? So the first episode or two is the assault on Torrington and the, the Gundam Jack. And then I think maybe an episode or so after that is the escape to space. 
where Delaz is successful, Gato is successful in getting uh, Unit 2 or GPO 2, however you want to call it, to space mm -hmm. so that then it can be further utilized by the Delaz fleet. And at that point, our main cast, our heroes, the crew of the Albion, Ko-Uraki, Keith, Lieutenant Burning, uh, Bait, Adele, Mansha, and then you've got your Anaheim Electronics uh, personnel who are responsible for the Gundam, that's Nina Purpleton. And from then on, it's kind of like a recovery mission, right, Isaac? And Or, or a recovery and or a destroy mission of, hey, we lost Unit 2. You better go find it. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot that the officer did kind of give those instructions, whoever they were getting orders from at Jabrow. Is that the right way to go about it? Well, if there's a conspiracy afoot, perhaps it is. I'd almost feel like they'd say, you know what, destroy it. Like, no matter what. Well, at first it was a recovery, and then eventually they did tell uh, Synapse to shift to destroy mode, I think. And Nina was a little upset about it, but, you know, Synapse was like, you're going to have to deal with it, lady. Not not to jump ahead, but if you remember when they're in Africa searching around, I think the, the bridge crew starts kind of, you know, getting a little grumbly about what the brass is deciding. And mm -hmm. they say, you know, only Cohen ships are really looking for it. So at this point, it's very clear that the conspirators in the, the Federation are already hobbling the efforts to actually stop Unit 2. Yeah, I think he gives them, what, two ships to, to help them, two Salamis, and then both of them end up getting destroyed by Shima. Um, so, <laughs> like, they, they ended up, like, not really being that much of a help other than they drew some fire for for a little bit of time. Yeah, well, I mean, they saved the Albion's life, right? I don't know why, but, like, remember Shima? Like, she was she has a perfect bird's-eye view of, of the, the, the small Federation fleet, and she's like, decisions, decisions. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> so she goes after the Salamises, I assume because she's very used to destroying them. <laughs> yeah, from the one-year war. She was very sure about it. You know, she just kind of stood yeah. on it and was like, yeah, we're done here, and just fired her gun in the bridge and, and flew away. You think she could have taken out the Albion if she went for them instead? Or is, is the Albion, at like any white base, it, it literally has too many guns? <laughs> Uh, I think she could definitely could have given it a good shot if she had stopped focusing on Ko. She obviously wanted to blow up the Unit 1, and she probably yeah. spent too much time on it. He was already crippled. She didn't need to keep going. She didn't know what it was at first. She like looked at it and was like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> so everyone wants to kill, blow up a Gundam, right? So I guess I don't blame her. As long as you know what it is. like. Yeah. <laughs> and so I guess... By the end of episode 7, the search mission has ended up on the moon. The unit 1 was very damaged and had to get repaired by Anaheim, which is, they have a base on the moon. And while on the moon, our hero, Ko, uh, ends up befriending slash meeting a one-year war ace who owns a mobile armor, and uh, they end up fighting uh, on the moon, which was pretty cool. Because like you said, we don't see a whole lot of the moon of Luna, about how it no. works and the cities on it. Like, I wrote down, like, I want a... Gundam side story on the moon. We almost see nothing about the moon. What do we, what do we know so far about the moon? They're generally pacifist, or at least neutral, to their own ends. At least outwardly neutral. Yeah, the the first secret battle of the one-year war happened there, between mobile suits. Per the origin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Other than that, like... I don't recall much of it during the Zeta series, but it's been a while yeah. since I've watched those, so, you know, I'm sure we visit there a little bit, but... I think in Double Zeta it shows up more? Could be. I don't recall. But yeah, you think we'd have, I don't know, Lunar Gundam or something like that, or who knows. Hey, while we're talking about Luna, Brian, if you remember, I think Kelly Lazner. no, actually, I think Captain Synapse is saying, oh, some guy named Kelly Lazner's attacking us or something. Oh, yep. Mm -hmm. And and uh, Nina hears the, his name. 
Mm-hmm. She, she clearly met him, right? Because he was Gato's friend. So they'd probably been to a lot of parties just and stuff and dinner as a group or something like that, right? Uh, she did. And you can definitely tell yeah. that by the end of the episode because, so I wrote this down as a good example of showing and not telling. She runs out into the battle on her little, I, I named it a skiff for lack of a better term. That's the perfect word for it. <laughs> I don't know where she found this this little vehicle, but. She stole it from the hangar bay, yeah. Yeah, but like, like why did she choose that one of all things? I, I don't know, but. Probably the only thing that can move. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of a skiff from Star Wars. So she rides this little skiff out there and she, and she starts talking to Kelly and she's like, Kelly, you're acting like Gato. You know, we can work this out. And, and he and uh, Kelly replies, Nina, like, what are you doing here? Or something like that. And then he accidentally shoots her little skiff. So, so yeah, clearly that was the moment I think you were supposed to realize that Nina's previous boyfriend, which had been alluded to, was Gato. Is Kelly from the moon or is he from side three and he just stayed on the moon? Oh, uh, I assumed that he was from side three. Otherwise, I don't know why he would love Zeon so much. But uh, I guess he could be from the moon. I mean, you know, they're space noids as well, I suppose. That makes more sense. Originally, I thought Gato was from luna too but then i i was like no he clearly was stationed on the moon and met nina but i'm not sure maybe there's some source that says where they are ironically i wonder if that meant gato was under kaecilia's chain of command at one point if he was on the moon she was at granada yeah it could be maybe he didn't care for her or he really didn't you know once every, once all the zombies were dead he was like well the lot has to call the shots anyways so yeah he's <laughs> This guy has a Guazine-class ship. I think I'll get on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, heading, it's heading away from the battle. <laughs> All right, so let's let's jump to the intro, Isaac. We get sure. a, a glimpse of a Bawaku. It's a flashback to 0079. Gato is cleaving through some gyms in his uh, custom Gelgoog. As much of a fan of Gato that you are, I, it sounds like you do not enjoy Gato's custom colors. No, I don't. And those colors don't go together. And I think the listeners will agree with me because that deep turquoise on like green, it doesn't work. I think what's jarring to me about it, I don't mind it. I I have the model of it. I'm excited to build it. Uh, I think what's weird to me is that he has the pilot hatch colored bright yellow as if it's like, please shoot me here. (laughs) It's it's very much Batman, (laughs) right? Where he has the yellow symbol. Maybe that's like uh, an insult to like the Federation, you know? It's mm, like, like you can't hit me? Yeah. Yeah, he'll paint like his reactor red just to give them the middle <laughs> finger since they can't kill him anyway. <laughs> what I did like about that battle, Isaac, was that it's very quick, but you do see Gato's Gelgu get damaged just kind of from stray fire, basically, I think. And that just goes to show you that Abawaku was so hectic that the battle was complete luck, pretty much, if you were coming out of there alive. Like, I felt like... Uh, MS Igloo showed that very well, right? When people just launched and they would just get destroyed by random, you know, beams and stuff coming in that they, they had no way of knowing was there. Yeah, it was such hell. You know, he, he loses his Gelgoog, and then when he's actually in the the Guazine <laughs> talking to Dull Eyes, he's just trying to get into any dom he can get into. <laughs> that yeah. wasn't his dom, right? <laughs> no, it was not. And so this so this dom is very interesting, Isaac. This dom looks like a dom troppin, which, as you know, is a land-based suit. Mm-hmm. So I think some people over the years have wondered, like, why is he being an idiot trying to get into a dom troppin? Like, it's not going to work well if he takes it out. And some people thought, oh, just like you said, he just he's just trying to get anything with a gun. Just just float me out there, and I'll go fight again. But uh, now, whether it's just a, an animation error or whatever, the official story now is that that dom was a prototype. Rick Dom Zwi or Zwi, I'm not sure how you say the, the Zwi or Zwi part. But that Rick Dom is the step between the Rick Dom 1 and the Rick Dom 2. And the Rick Dom 2 was built specifically for space use, whereas the Rick Dom 1, I believe, was converted from the original Dom, which was the land Dom. 
The wiki says that it was perhaps a Rickdom 2 built on a Dom Troppen body because it wasn't fully into the Rickdom 2 yet, so that's why it looks like that. But it has a special coloring. It's red. Did you notice that? Yeah, it's it's very not like a space dom <laughs> none that we've seen yeah it's a dom trop and uh, outwardly but apparently it is officially known as the prototype rick doms we <laughs> so there you go i don't blame the animation team for like look we put a lot of time into the dom trop and <laughs> design and we don't have one for the original dom so we're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna put the dom trop in space you know it's on screen for five seconds and then then we'll do a close-up and no one will know the difference <laughs> no one will notice and then little do they know there was probably that guy right after he got his videotape in the mail he's like that's that that was a dom Troppen. you can't like it doesn't yeah. make any sense this is a space <laughs> fortress how desperate is zeon <laughs> <laughs> I also liked about that battle that right away Delaz knew that Cassilia had 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 somehow sabotaged Girin or or committed some sort of coup. Yeah, the officer on his bridge reading the message was like, "Oh, Commander Girin's been killed, and Cassilia's in command now." <laughs> so, yeah, Delaz did not take that news well. <laughs> he lost a couple of years of his uh his heart stamina on that one. <laughs> So that's our introduction to Delaz and, and Gato. And basically Delaz convinces Gato not to go out and to bide his time. So three years later, we end up in 0083, Isaac. You're home. Yay. If you watch this in Zeta, I, I know we're here now in 2022, and we weren't even around when Zeta came out or the original Molsu Gundam. But I can definitely see people kind of scratching their heads and saying, what, what the heck happened to cause an organization like the Titans to show up? And mm, this yep. is the answer. So whoever realized that they needed to make double eighty three was uh, pretty clever. Yeah, I think it's a great fill in, right? Right. It was definitely needed. Yeah, I mean the Titans are a huge part of Zeta Gundam too. So ex- explaining them, I think, is uh, is a really good move. Yeah. So we open sort sort of in present day or in double eighty three. We start seeing our heroes training at Torrington Base, Isaac. They're helping the team test out the, the powered gym, which is like this souped-up gym on steroids. I know you like thick suits, Isaac. Where does the powered <laughs> gym rank on your gym scale? Because I got to say, the powered gym's pretty cool, but yeah. apparently there were only two made, and they don't really appear in any other work, which I think is a little odd. Maybe uh, it makes sense lore-wise, because they were kind of like a test bed type thing, but they look pretty cool. Absolutely, yeah. I even like the color scheme, right? And the, the big backpack's cool. I think even Keith said, right, that, oh, that, that thing should be on the Zaku. It's too big for the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it has that big gun. I, it looks pretty neat. I like it. Ironically, maybe Keith had a hand in the development of the uh, the Hizak because uh, we did eventually get kind of mobile suits like that. But anyways, I thought it was pretty cool. It's clearly very fast. But uh, again, unfortunately, <laughs> as we saw with the Gundam Jack, it's not invincible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it it didn't seem a lot faster, but at the same time, it, I don't know that it performed all that much better, right? No, in in the hands of an ace, it probably would have done better because those ace Xeon pilots in older suits clearly outmatched them right. uh, most of the time. Yeah, with some fancy footwork. Oh man, I love the, I love the way the Dom on the night attack at the base. Like once it starts getting shot at, it does like a backward spin rooney and then gets out of there. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yes, it's like uh, the Doms are like really good at flag football. You know, like the the, oh. <laughs> the spin moves you had to do when you were a kid playing flag football. They spin their skirt on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Can't hit those guys. <laughs> uh, Cots, remember Cots? Poor guy. I forgot about him. Yeah. God, re- rewatching this whole series, I know we're kind of running off on my tangent, but man, there's so many things I forgot and I watched again. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember big blonde quiet guy on the bridge, you know, <laughs> Cots, I forgot about Cots. 
One thing I forgot, Isaac, was there's this this song uh, in the Powered Gym training sequence that doesn't get as much praise as the winner or uh, Men of Destiny from the show, but it's still it's still really good. I really like it. It's it's called Back to Paradise. It's it's also by um, Mickey Matsubara. She's she's the person who did the winner. You know, it's the one that goes back to. I can't do it, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. It's very similar to the opening song, but it's somewhat slower and a bit more mellow. Correct. It also has the f- fly like the wind, fly like the wind. <laughs> <laughs> that that gave me a lot of Top Gun feels. And, and oh God, we're going uh, off the tangent again. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, hang on. The, the more I was watching it, I was like, this is nothing like Top Gun. Like, I don't get... Like, did did the creators of the show fully watch all of Top Gun, or did they see the trailer to Top Gun? <laughs> because their personality-wise, they're nothing like the top aces of you know the Federation. These are just a bunch of young test pilots, and Top Gun's story never cut back and forth between like the Soviets and like the United States. You know, <laughs> it was just purely the United States. You know, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's Top Gun in the sense that it, the military feel is Top Gun, right? The mm. test pilots. But beyond that, yeah, there's not really any similarities. They very quickly stop being test pilots after like episode two. <laughs> and then they just become actual combat pilots. As they, yeah, they don't have a lot of choice, right? Yeah. So. Or I guess there's a little bit of testing. But yeah, we're, we're kind of past that, that phase. <laughs> so Isaac, we also meet the Pegasus class ship of the show, which is called the Albion. Oh, man. And they make a comment here, Isaac, that the Albion, I th- it was either Synapse, it's probably Synapse that makes it, ca- the captain of the ship, Captain Synapse. He mentions that the Albion has 211 crew members. And in my mind, I was like, that seems like a lot. I did not get the sense that the white base was rolling with 200 people on board. Did you? No. Uh, I mean, well, you have to remember the white base was like a skeleton civilian crew. True, true. But then I started to wonder, is the Albion just way bigger than the white base? Yeah, it looks bigger to me. Like, maybe not height-wise, but it definitely looks like they, they stretched it out. So here we go. I did some calculations because the, the measurements are available. Oh, wow. Are these canon? Uh, well, I don't know. They're on the wiki, so if you want to fault me for using the wiki, go ahead. But this is quick and dirty here. Let's so hear based on height, length, and width, I did a quick volume calculation. The Albion is 13% uh, larger by volume than the white base, oh. primarily in the length category. The Albion is go. 305 meters long, and the white base is only 262 meters. That's a pretty big difference. The other height and width, they're, they're very similar. Now, yeah. empty weight, though. The white base was only 32,000 metric tons empty. The Albion, however, was 48,900. So the Albion is 53% heavier when empty than the white base, which is significant. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the cafeteria scene, we saw how crowded that was. There's way more people in the hangar bays than we ever saw in White Base. Yeah. They have a good number of people on the bridge. They technically have more people than they should, I assume, because they have some civilians from Anaheim on board. Yeah. And they have the aces on board, too. So you could easily lose a lot of 200 people in there. There'd be engineering and other sections, the weapon sections we don't see, gunners and stuff like that. The bridge, hangar crew... Um, and then like support services. Don't forget the the, the mandatory Federation chef. <laughs> hey, you got to have that chef, man. <laughs> he's keeping your salt levels correct. Yeah, he's got to make those those hamburgers that he was passing out on the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Again, going back to my liking things that are showing, not telling. What I really loved in this first episode was that Captain Synapse had authorization to open the nuclear storage bunker. 
they didn't start out by saying nuclear weapons have been banned, blah, blah, blah. They just went into this thing where he had a, he had this access that everyone was surprised that he had the access, and they said, oh, you know, we haven't opened this in a long time. It made it feel, like, special. I, I liked that. Yeah, and unfortunately that was the last act that base commander really did of importance. <laughs> yeah, whoops. What's up with Lieutenant Burning? Is he just really tan, or, like, what? what's the deal? You know what? It, it's funny you mention that. Because I know it says this on the website, but I'd really like to challenge it and even suggest we retcon it because that man is not 29 years old. (laughs) I don't care how close he was to a colony drop (laughs) or, or how much he used to work outside under the sun. He is not 29. That man is maybe 42, 44. Oh, yeah. He is not a 29-year-old man, but yes, he enjoys his time in the Australian sun because, man, he's worn out like leather. He is burned to a crisp. <laughs> he's got the skin of a leather wall, a brown leather wall. <laughs> he is an alligator walking around up there. Yeah. But so I didn't realize that he was 29, but that makes sense because I, I did see, though, that, that Mancha is listed as 27, which I also oh god I also yeah. firmly disagree with. I think yeah. he is late 30s at best. <laughs> Motion to up-age Mancha and Lieutenant Bernie. <laughs> god, yeah. well, oh, God, should I check how old Ko is? He's probably going to be 19 or something. Ko is 19. Okay. I can take that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that I'm okay with. Like, yeah. in, in fact, he kind of acts like he's 14 sometimes. But oh god, yeah, I was like, I was like, this kid must be 18. Like, he, <laughs> he must have been the youngest they can possibly recruit him. Because yeah. Now I I know that our listeners, particularly our military listeners, corrected us that it was okay for Nina to be in charge of the Gundam, based on real world scenarios. Yeah. That said, I still don't like the load. I still don't like the loading of the nuke the night before. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Maybe, we, well, I guess we never find out from the members of our military if they know what's good for them, right? Um, I was about to say, if your base is like literally in the middle of nowhere, there's not even a town nearby or something, is it normal to not really have like guards around important situations? I think they tried to solve this. There was a line in the very beginning where Gato is like, you know, I can't believe the bases are just wide open like this. And the guy who picks him up it says something like, all the Federation bases are like this right now. And I, I guess they were trying to imply that basically since the war is over, that the Federation doesn't care anymore. Well, yeah, they're right. I mean, oh, wow. Well, no. I was about to say, do you think the conspirators had a hand in that? Or that that might be too low of a detail for them to possibly have a hand in? Uh, I wouldn't put it past them. But at that point, I mean, why don't you just give him the damn thing? Like, just ship it to him. You know what I mean? <laughs> pull pull an Anaheim and just leave a nuke drifting in space, in, in space and say, oh, right. I don't know what happened. You know, it could have yeah. gone anywhere. <laughs> That's a good point. Did they actually need Unit 2 or did they just need a nuke? I think they needed Unit 2 to fire it. Hmm. Well, actually, no, because they could have just used a missile, I guess? Just manufactured the bazooka yeah. and the nuke. <laughs> I don't know. We're, could have saved a lot of money on that one. Yeah, we're kind of nitpicking like what, what could have been done. <laughs> my, my main what could have been done, if the Valvaro made it to the Lost Fleet, how much of an impact would that have had? That's a great question because Ko was, was barely able to deal with the Noiseal now, if it was Noiseal and the Valvaro, then yeah, I, th- I think they'd be in serious trouble. I was thinking about that, and then part of me was like, hang on. The Dendrobium was immune to being weapons. <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's kind of all the Valvaro had. I mean, it would, it would have to fly up and claw them to, to death, right? Yeah, it'd have to use those pincers, but... 
it would be easier though, right? If the noise eel had some help to do the the physical damage as well. So yeah, that's true. And it's a good thought. I like. It. Hmm, I wonder how it would have. Well, it still would have gotten cooked a bit from the uh, the solar system. Yeah, true. During the Gundam Jack Isaac, what's your take on Nina seeing Gato steal it and not realizing that it's Gato? Was it just too far away, or <sighs> now? And I've heard some people before you answer. I've heard some people say. That, that, now, this show did have a change in director after episode 7. So 1 to 7 was ah. done by some person, and, and 8 plus was done by someone else. Uh, now, I don't know that that's the right explanation, but it kind of I could kind of see that. But then that it kind of implies that they don't really know where the story was going, which I don't I don't know that I agree with that. But I don't know. What's your take on that? Was it just Is it too far? Should we just say she can't see? Part of me, well, putting aside the um, you know, change in director and all that, in order to make it make sense... Part of me wants to give Nina the benefit of the doubt by saying, look, for all she knows, Gato died or he's at side three or, or whatever. You know, there's no way this guy on earth is him that she's looking at that the back of his head, the, the ponytail. He does have like white hair, though. <laughs> it's like pretty strikingly <laughs> unique. She should recognize someone with the hair of her ex <laughs> from the back in a different location and in uh, a different context years later. <laughs> yeah, I, I did read. I don't remember if it's the either a novelization or maybe it's the newer retelling manga that's you know changes some details. One of them gives him a helmet during this scene. Huh. To kind of explain why she doesn't recognize him, but I'll, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I mean, she's at work; she's focused on the prototype, the testing, way across the hangar. Some other guy in the uniform. The back of his head has a, a white ponytail. So what? But he's getting in the the cockpit. So she's all on instinct. You know, get out of there, whoever you are. Stop what you're doing. You know about Gato Isaac when he fights Ko when Burning's team is pursuing Gato after he's already stolen Unit Two and they're trying to recover him. He could have killed Ko that night, but he didn't. <laughs> yeah, there's a part where, like, he goes airborne and kind of stomps on his back with one foot and then leaves. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, like, easily could have stabbed him. He calls him, like, you know, you poor kid, what are you doing out here or something like that. I like that because it at least shows that Gato has some morals. Like, he's not out just to kill people, just to be killing people. Did Gato know it was the soldier he just passed in the hangar bee? I don't think so. Okay. Well, he knows Ko's a, a young idiot because Ko, you know, addressed him as sir while they were in combat. <laughs> and, and what does Gato say? I'm the enemy, you idiot. Yeah. Gato was saying like, oh, you should have a bigger, you know, if you're actually a combat, you should have a better picture if you don't want to be a grunt or something like that. Yeah. Look at the whole picture, I think is what he tells him. So I would have liked to have seen a burning versus Gato match, Isaac. Wow. Yeah. Burning and what though? Uh, that's a good question. I think he went out in a regular gym, right? Well, it was the gym type C or the the gym Kai or whatever, so it's a it's a better gym. I don't like that color scheme on that gym with the pink. I really I, oh, I don't like that at all. But kind of a salmon sand. <laughs> you were giving me crap for not saying that. Uh, Saleta's hair is like Amro, and now you're throwing salmon at me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, you got me there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess supposedly that's a pretty good gym, so it probably would have been that. <laughs> Is giving Keith the Zaku, like, kind of saying, like, we know you're going to die, so take, like, the least important mobile suit we have. <laughs> well, I think they just give the trainees, you know, the least important one, so if, in case they mess them up, it's not a big deal. Well, I mean, in the pursuit of the Gundam, like, when they actually needed, you know, weapon-capable mobile suits, because oh. they gave, they get, Kots went out in a, a Zaku also, 
Actually, well, they might not have told everybody what to get into. It might have just been a case of get into a mobile suit now. Yeah, well, I think it's whatever's tuned for them, right? I mean, he has to take what's available and, and ready to go. Like, they don't have time to be like, oh, you want to use something else? Let me go change all the settings. Yeah, yeah. It's too bad about Kotz. I would have liked to see more of him. Poor bastard. <laughs> I mean, that was a great death, but like, god damn. All he had to do was boost. He forgot to boost. <laughs> you fool. Yeah, if we're ever dueling in, in mobile suits in the future, Brian, like, and I'm coming at you when we're sparring, like, just just boost and you can dodge my heat saber. <laughs> yeah, he didn't last long. He, like, walked right out and just... Stay where he was and started shooting. And then the Dom was like, oh, this will be easy. <laughs> yeah, this is terrible. What about the submarine crew, Isaac? The Xeon sub crew that ended up being key to the escape? Yeah, the Yukon. Dare I say they're responsible for the majority of the damage at the base because they just bombarded that thing with missiles. Oh, yeah, they rained down those, yeah. like, I don't know what to call them, but, yeah. like those splitter missile type Scatter things. Scatter missiles, yeah. They should have gotten medals for how great that operation went. My <laughs> God. <laughs> Poor Torrington base got torn up. As usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the first time we see it, and uh, it's, 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 it's a taste of what's to come. <laughs> <laughs> Just more more destruction. Over the decades, yeah. Xeon is very successful at penetrating this base. So Yeah, I just, I don't know what it is about this base, but we need to close <laughs> it and move it. <laughs> it is Xeon's mistress. <laughs> Xeon's mistress. <laughs> Xeon comes over whenever it wants and uh. it just plows through. <laughs> <laughs> but does that mean the sub crew was just submarining around for three years? That's a terrible life. Uh, I mean, I, I assume they were doing various raids or... They hunkered down very much like the African Xeon remnants, yeah. Maybe they found some friendly port or some secret port nobody knew about, and they just stayed there until the laws contacted them and said, hey, I've got a great idea. And around this time, Isaac, the Federation does at least send some help. So they send the Immortal Fourth Team, which is Burning's old comrades from the One Year War, uh, Mancha, Bait, and Adele to, to help, uh, along with some new suits. And I would say that Mancha's kind of the main one that we get to know the most. Is that fair? Yes, unfortunately, because Mancha is like one of the worst people in the show. <laughs> he is. I, I, I guess I don't remember him being that bad, but yeah, he's he's just a real piece of yeah, garbage. I, no one on the side of Zeon treats their fellow like <laughs> members of their faction that way. <laughs> yeah, which continues what we talked about from, the, from 0079, right? Which is... Generally, the Xeon officers are fairly noble, at least in how they carry themselves, even if you may disagree with what they're doing. Whereas the Federation, you may agree with what they're doing, but man, just, again, they're all going to the Bascom school of terribleness. Yeah, just absolute power corrupts absolutely. The Xeon, you know, they, they've got that whole ideals and that they strive for that kind of keeps them in check, but the Federation, it's just another day at the office, really. Yeah. What are the Federation ideals? We never find out. <laughs> no, keep order, I guess. How's that going? <laughs> yeah, not well. But yeah, he, he's just a garbage human being, and he's always yeah. drunk, pretty much. And they allow him to like pilot mobile suits drunk, which should be like a, a DUI ten times over, right? Yeah, and also like he does like childish pranks, like he uh, he messed up Coast Landing in the core mm, fighter. That's right. That could have gone bad. I, I forgot that blonde guy. What's his name? Uh, either Bait or Adele. I'm not sure which yeah, one's which. Yeah, whichever one he is, I forgot he's a bit of a scumbag too. Correct. You yeah, know, he was the, like defending yeah. Mancha in the hangar bay when uh, Mora was confronting him about how he was harassing the women. And right. Yeah, but the other guy actually seems pretty good, mustache, yeah. because 
if you remember, he really didn't want to be involved at all with um, the prank on Co. Potentially Correct. lethal prank. Prank isn't even a right word. The sabotage of Co. <laughs> right. So I, I think he's the one good guy. And later on, he'll actually be the one that tells Co. You know, it's up to you, really, at at, um, at Conpei Island. You're the only one that can really get to Gato. Yeah, I agree. He's the only one of the fourth team where I was like, okay, you're okay. The other two, you blonde guy to a, a slightly, you know, a lesser degree, but you're both just terrible people. <laughs> Brian, when when <laughs> when Lieutenant Burning dies, do they stop calling them the immortal fourth team? <laughs> they just call them the fourth team. It's <laughs> a fair question. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's something Shima would say <laughs> over the radio. <laughs> She's laughing at them. <laughs> so at this point, we do get that that episode where this whole like weird triangle between Mancha, Nina, and Co is a little strange to me. But Mancha really wants to go out with Nina because he likes blondes, essentially, even though he has no real chance. And he ends up challenging Co to be the pilot of Unit One, and they have a duel. And Co is like dead to rights during this duel, Isaac. But then he kind of gets lucky and Mancha's the footing that he's on breaks and he ends up losing but like during the duel ko foolishly like walks into the what i assume is colony wreckage yeah and he's just walking all loudly like oh is you know is he in here and i was like oh what are you doing like this is a terrible (laughs) strategy it did kind of work in ko's favor because he was able to kind of you know tackle him i guess but if mancha's footing hadn't failed ko was gonna lose so yeah, but that, that's combat. That's how it goes. Things don't always go according to plan, and even if you're some kind of ace, if <laughs> things don't go your way, they just don't go your way. Oh, did you notice that everybody has a different symbol on the side of their helmet? I did, and I was going to ask yeah. you about that. So Keith has the heart with the slash through it. I love Ko's. It has a, it has a kangaroo on it, which I thought was hilarious because oh, they're based that's out what of Australia. Yeah. I was wondering what that was. I was like, is that some type of swoosh logo or something like that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a kangaroo with boxing gloves i'm pretty sure so okay see that that's something that if you were gonna build like a master grade gpo1 they should include a decal for that like that would be super cool yeah it would be did you notice the drawing on the back of the (laughs) zommel no what was it oh man so it's it's like a a busty woman and it says like zeke (laughs) zeon oh awesome (laughs) I love it. The more you discover on this, the 20th rewatch, uh, <laughs> the Zommel, it was the size of a small hill next to a GM. <laughs> Zommel is enormous. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't believe it wasn't able to like, with its weight, just crush the gyms when they were in combat. Yeah. It almost did. Yeah. I mean, it could, it could like ran them against the rocks, but for whatever reason, I guess Federation Engineering, um, they weren't just splatted in, in half. Maybe the reason for it being so big, Isaac, is because the wiki says, and I think we discussed this one other time, maybe when we talked about Igloo, but it is apparently developed from the Hidolfer from Igloo. Yeah, it's definitely a much more mobile version of it. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, say what you will about the Zommel and how we've only seen one, but that thing can move. It's, it might be the size of a small hill, but it's quick. It's apparently great for taking down bases, but man, it's uh, a bit limited in its abilities. But it served its purpose. I like those designs, yeah. right? The Zommel's very memorable. Yeah, you don't forget that. And it's it's definitely, I don't know. It was it was such a surprise seeing how big it was next to the GMs. Yeah, I was sad when the neither of the Dom pilots nor the Zommel pilot made it out. I mean, I, I, you, you kind of knew that was going to happen, right, going in. But 
I was kind of happy, though, that Keith killed the Dom. <laughs> it was a bit of a luck kill, though. Didn't he just kind of slash him in the arm and it just caused the reactor to blow up or something? Yeah, but, I mean, a, a kill's a kill, and that guy definitely had way more experience than Keith. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So once Gatto gets away initially, he then uh, heads to Africa because that's where there's this abandoned diamond mine base that is being occupied by Xeon remnant forces, the Kimberlite forces. And they have Isaac and HLV. Yeah, they do. They can take him to space. They've been saving it up. (laughs) And this is what they're going to use it on. They also have diamonds, including a massive diamond. (laughs) It's next to worthless because they can't leave the base. (laughs) Yeah, that diamond was enormous. They should tr- probably try to sell it. Yeah, I don't. I, I get they might raise too many questions. You know, well, where's this from? And you know, <laughs> who gave this to you? But yes, glad they gave it to Gado to take away. So there were only two points in the first seven episodes where I felt Ko did a good piloting maneuver. So the first is here when he was fighting the Kimberlite forces. Mancha is in charge, and he orders Ko to break through, which was a real <laughs> move, Isaac, because it was basically. You know, they were pinned down, and he was basically using Ko as a meat shield, right? Sounds about right for Mancha. <laughs> yeah, well, Ko, you know, flips out of the trench, and he takes out two of the four in front of them with these fancy maneuvers. Yeah, that was so cool. Yeah, and then he rendezvoused with the Albion, and he shot down the commander who was about to destroy the Albion. So Ko did great this battle with the Kimberlite forces. Yeah. What is up with capital ships losing hardcore when the or, or like letting the enemy get in? On with the chalk it up to Minovsky particles. You know the commander was the only one that made it that close. So I assume he's an ace. He's top of his class. But yeah, it's it, it happens in war. You know, the, dare I say, uh, Federation ships are notorious for for enemy uh, mobile suits being able to get to the bridge, <laughs> land on top of their bridge. So, you know, spoilers, the, the HLV does launch, and, and uh, Gato does escape to space. Once they get to space, Isaac, Gato meets Shima and Delaz at the same time. Was that just, like, one of your favorite episodes? It was a good confrontation. I mean, that, that <laughs> going to the Garden of Thorns was so cool anyways. You know, we see where Zeon, um, the Delaz fleet's hiding out. You know, we see Delaz has gone full megalomaniac with his throne room that, I guess... He must have been in Delaz's throne room, I guess, a few times because it looks a lot like it. His whole little busted gear in. And, of course, the, the face-to-face meeting with uh, Shima. Man, uh, Gato's really polite. <laughs> After she leaves, he does say she has a black heart. Yeah, he's willing to talk behind her back. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about the Garden of Thorns? Sure. It's built in a shoal zone. It looks like it's an asteroid connected to the ruins of a colony and the lost fleet uses it as their base. You can see a bunch of uh, moose eyes sort of attached to the, the makeshift docking bays they've made and also the Guazin. It's pretty dangerous to navigate. That's why the Federation doesn't really go in there. There's just too much debris. So it's a great place to hide. Plus with Minovsky particles, it's going to be very difficult to find uh, the lost fleet's base. And I wish they would have given more of that background in the show, because I think it's important that Delaz is not at Axis. Yeah. That becomes key later on. I feel like there could have been some more expository stuff there. Yeah, maybe just like a, an offhand comment rather than Admiral, like, well, we, you know, we, we don't know if they're in the Shoal Zones or someplace between the sides. We've, we're, you know, we're unable to locate them. Right. And then we'd be like, oh, okay, the, of course they're in the Shoal Zone. Where else would they be? You know? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> but but I think visually, too, it's just very interesting. Yeah, you're going into it, and you're like, why are we looking at all this wreckage? And then you get closer and closer, and you're like, oh, God, there's a fleet there. <laughs> this is the point where, so Shima leaves that meeting, and it becomes very clear that Gato and Shima do not like each other, right? Well, she almost rammed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can't break. It's too late. Which, uh, okay, side note, I'm going to mention this now. The Blu-rays include the series... And they also include the compilation movie, which I thought was interesting. I didn't realize it included that. But it also includes the two Shima shorts. So, Isaac, when we first watched this show back in the day, uh-huh. when we were wee lads, there was only one Shima short. Hmm. They made another one in 2015, wow. 2016. I think we may have to dedicate a, uh, another episode to the two shorts called The Mayfly of Space. I'd love it. Yeah, because during that, we learn a little bit why they don't like each other. Yeah, and without giving too much away, it, it's not Shima's fault. <laughs> right, right. So uh, we'll get more into that. But it calls back to the prototype Rick Dom's Wii, Isaac, because in it, in one of the, I think it's the second special, apparently, Gato uses it in a little tussle with Shima. So Wow. Did he beat her, or was it, like, close? I don't know. Hmm. I guess my point is, listeners, if you like this show, I highly recommend that you go check out the two shorts, uh, The Mayfly of Space, because they give a lot of background about shima that's not super clear in the show she definitely acts like she won any fight that they had <laughs> right yeah uh shima's so cool i would love to see it i mean they're both cool pilots so. yeah man what could have been so I, I take it then that you like her color scheme a lot better than his oh her galgoog are you kidding that looks yeah. amazing the purple and the, <laughs> the that kind of orange khaki that looks so cool yeah yeah she looks like an ace you know, his colors are too dark. His colors blend too much with space. You know what the, my problem is? They don't sell a master grade Gelgoog Marine, I don't think. Unless I'm getting it confused with the Gelgoog Jaeger. No, you're you're right, the Gelgoog Marine. Which is weird because it's a really cool design. I wonder what's so different yeah. about it, actually. I'll have to look up on the differences between the Gelgoog Marine versus the Gelgoog, the regular Gelgoog. Or, or what Xeon Marines did that's completely different than regular <laughs> Xeon troops. Yeah, they, I don't know, they had more mottos or something. <laughs> <laughs> They're way better at marching. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac, this part where Shima intercepts Ko has one of my favorite parts. Ko and Mancha are arguing again, and is uh-huh. saying that he's going to wreck the Gundam. And Ko says, oh yeah, I'm not going to wreck it. And then he immediately takes Unit 1 out against Nina's wishes because it's not tuned for space and he immediately gets completely like wrecked by Shima. Yeah, like everybody knows something's wrong with his mobile <laughs> It like barely boosts around. Yeah, his math must have been really wrong, right? That he inputted into the computer. Yes. Man. Yes. I wonder like in the aftermath of this, you'd, you'd almost think that like the captain would be mad at Nina. Right, yeah. Because he'd be like, look, you clearly should have engineered this properly and entered in whatever programming update you have to to the computer. Like, you know we're in combat. Don't let the pilot do it himself. He's not an engineer. I mean, she was mad at herself because she did the calculations. She just didn't give it to him. Well, at the last minute. <laughs> she, yeah, she gave it to him at the last minute, and then he kind of brushed her off, right? But she, her thought was, if I don't give it to him, he can't take it out. Clearly, she underestimated Ko's stupidity. <laughs> it was his pride, really. Yeah, yeah, this whole episode was about pride, you know, and God, how stupid. But I, it's a teenager, emotions are running high on the ship, so we can give them a little bit of a pass. 
Isaac, this is also when Delaz breaks through the communications channel and gives his speech in front of Unit 2. How did that happen? How can you... Well, oh, you think the conspirators had a hand oh, in that? Ooh. There you go. They're like, you know what? We have to let this idiot talk so we can put it all on him. <laughs> Make sure the channel like security is unencrypted so it's easy to hack or whatever. <laughs> I think here's where Delaz shines, Isaac. I think he's the best voice actor in the series. Wow. When he talks, you pay attention in this show. The speech was great. The fact that he was giving it in front of Unit 2, which has this, you know, evil visage, right? And you, you even have, is Admiral Cohen that has the cool voice that's uh, Jet from Bebop? Same yeah, guy. Him. Bo Billingsley. Cohen. Yeah. yeah, he calls him the ghost of Giran Zabi. I feel like the Federation and Zeon Brass were given really good voice actors. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's just such a powerful speech. Like, this is clearly a departure from the Zeon we saw in the one year war because they're just so obsessed with this myth of zeon ideals and whatever that is they never really talk about it well they, they always say like space noise independence and stuff like that so part of me thinks if stardust was a success it would have resulted in the sides rebelling and joining zeon and side three overthrowing the republic of zeon and you know going full principality of zeon again and the laws envisioned himself as becoming the leader of all this and waging war on earth and winning Right? That that was the game plan. Yeah, he wanted to reignite Zeon under him, essentially. Yeah. I, I laughed because I was reading a little bit about him on the wiki, and it says that he promoted himself to his to his rank, and I thought that was... I was like, oh, that's, that's efficient. <laughs> I mean, no one else is left in the chain of command, so... <laughs> Battlefield... Someone's got to yeah. do it. Okay. And while I'm at it, I need a marble throne. <laughs> <laughs> Requisition me one of those. I don't care how much it costs. Put a bust of my best friend... <laughs> Over the <laughs> Maybe he gets shipment from shipments from that diamond mine. <laughs> we found some marble. We don't know what to do with it. <laughs> right after that speech, Isaac, Cohen gives the Albion the bad news that he's not going to be able to give you any more support. Apparently, the Federation brass does not take Delaz seriously. Is that our first real hint of the conspiracy? It's an early one. Yeah. Right? I mean, you'd, you'd have to rewatch the series in order to catch that, but... Yeah, clearly at this point, it's like, wow, Zeon's clearly able to, you know, go deep into the Federation, steal a nuclear-equipped Gundam, and no one's really freaking out. Uh, something else is going on here. It's very Chekhov's rifle, right? Where, like, that's that's a trope where they introduce, like, a rifle in, like, Act 1, and you know in mm -hmm. Act 3 it's going to get fired. So <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't make a nuclear-armed Gundam and not fire the nuke, right? Yeah. Now, Unit 1 was very damaged by Shima. <laughs> like, I'm surprised they were even able to fix it. How come she switched to her forearm gun? Like, did her rifle run out of ammo? Yeah, I was thinking either she was out of ammo or it was overheated or, you know, maybe she was just fed up and she was just going to try something else because it wasn't working. Yeah, man. Even the forearm gun was making a quick work of it. She should have just stayed and killed him. I think she would have lived. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. What well, could have been? Damn it, Shima. And we could have had a different protagonist for the second half of the show. <laughs> <laughs> After Ko, who gets it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Anyone, really. Keith would be, you know, random new guy would also be acceptable over Ko. Say what you will about Keith, but, like, he almost has, like, a luck factor. He might have actually pulled it off. Yeah, he always survives, man. Yeah, he, he made it to the end. So because Unit 1's so damaged, Isaac, they go to the moon so that Anna, Anaheim can fix it. And we meet this cadre of Anaheim babes, as uh, Keith puts it. And we, we talked about how the old guy at Anaheim, he probably just hires all these young women. <laughs> um, just a little odd. You know something I noticed when they showed, like, 
for two seconds, the the Anaheim Electronics Building, th- there were a mm-hmm. few men wearing suits in that same color. So this is clearly a corporate type uniform thing. Oh, uh, but there are also people in regular suits and regular clothes. So I have no idea what it specifically means. It might be just an engineering thing. Yeah, maybe the engineering people get like powder blue suits. Is that it? Yeah, I guess so. But like, even her boss doesn't have to wear it. He just has like a regular suit. Yeah, he's like, I'm done with that. I'm the boss now. So. <laughs> now, while on the moon, Isaac, obviously Ko's suit, Unit 1, is, is busted. So he, he wanders around, and who does he meet? Ko, <laughs> well, first he meets a bunch of thuggish Lunarians. <laughs> <laughs> That's who he really meets, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You got me there. <laughs> they slap him around like he's a rag doll, <laughs> and there's $20 sewn inside of him. Um, <laughs> And while he's unconscious, Kelly Lazner meets him. <laughs> That's what happened, Brian. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. <laughs> Poor guy. I I guess like are are pilots known for like not doing hand to hand combat training or something? Because man, most <laughs> civilians like they beat him like a bad habit. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> they laid into him pretty good. Yeah. Right? I, I figured like I don't know, Cole would have been able to you know, knock down one, and then the other ones would kind of back off, you know? <laughs> but no. <laughs> no. No. You know what? Kelly looks like he could have beaten all three of them, and he's like a one-armed man, right? Kelly's a big guy. <laughs> <laughs> he is a big guy. His design reminds me a lot of uh, Kukuru's Doan. Yeah. He's just a big guy that, like, works with his hands. Yes. Yeah. Or you hand. mess with that yeah. dude. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, he meets Kelly Lazner on Luna after getting smacked around and beaten up by a bunch of civilians who didn't want him there. And uh, Kelly takes him back to his junkyard, his massive junkyard. <laughs> Land must be cheap on the moon, Isaac. Since they can build up and down, I assume, yeah, it is cheap. They just go deeper into the <laughs> earth. Or they go deeper into the, the moon's crust. Or or he got in in a good time. Yeah. When moon property prices were low. He bought when interest rates were low and property prices were low. (laughs) It was a foreclosure. He used his he used his Zeon pension money. (laughs) (laughs) So Ko and and Kelly have some sort of philosophical pilot discussions about wanting to be a pilot, blah blah blah. But Kelly's got something in his junkyard, Isaac, that's just a little out of place. Yeah. (laughs) This is maybe one of the best looking mobile armors. It's the Valvaro, which I would describe as lobster crawfish from hell. <laughs> Cycloptic crustacean of doom. Um, it's got like a cool mono eye, this really pointed nose thing, almost like a swordfish, really. And then two big lobster yeah. arms. And it's a huge mobile armor. It's really cool. And uh, Kelly's been working on it. Yeah, and Co helps him finish it over the next night, basically, which I'm not sure that makes any sense, but... Uh. Brian, I will never understand why Ko, even though he feels like he owes Kelly for looking after him, would fix this mobile armor. This, this is the dumbest thing Ko's done, because <laughs> you, you have no idea if that thing's going to be turned on on this city, on Granada, on... on for, for all you know, he's going to head to Jabral. <laughs> Why? Yes. Why? Why do this? I 100% agree with you. And I totally get Kelly Lazner. His motivation makes sense to yes. me. The most tragic person in the show is probably his wife or girlfriend. I, I think her name is La- Latuna? Latura? 
Her name is Bumblebee Tuna. <laughs> Tuna, whatever. She's good with mayo. <laughs> she also likes and mustard celery. and pickles in hers. Like him, I totally get. Her, I totally get. That part's done well. But Co here, you're right. This is the worst part of the show in terms of logic and believability. This makes zero sense, Isaac. <laughs> Why is he helping the enemy? He sees this mobile armor in this dude's garage. Does this look like a Federation unit to you, Co, Mr. Gundam fan? What do you think he's going to do with it when he fixes it? Is he going to take it to a parade? A one-year war reenactment? <laughs> like, We're going to reenact it by killing a lot of people. <laughs> What was going through Ko's head here? And then when when Kelly's wife comes back, uh, Latura comes back, she goes, Oh, Ko, why are you helping the enemy? And Ko goes, Oh, the enemy? So Ko clearly didn't put two and two together that this dude was an, uh, an ex-Zeon pilot, and, and not just any Zeon pilot either. They don't just give any random pilot a mobile armor, Isaac. Yeah, you have to be pretty good to get it, and you have to be fanatical to build one on your own. <laughs> So yes. that's the type of person Kelly is. I understand he's been through a lot. He wants to help out. You know, he's he's suffering through the uh, difficulties of, you know, wanting to be able-bodied and serve the cause. But unfortunately, he's going to do a lot of damage. If you think about it, if Code didn't help him, Kelly wouldn't have lived happily ever after, I assume, in the junkyard. And there wouldn't even been the fight outside of the city. Absolutely. Latura tells him as much. She's like, why are you helping him build this? After all these years, he had finally given up on building this thing. And Ko just ignores it and is like, ah, she seems upset, but I'm just going to help him build it because I like piloting and he's a pilot too. And he seems like a good guy and, and blah, blah, blah. But then this is this is what makes it unforgivable. So that already makes no sense, Isaac. And then he hears Shima talking to Kelly and getting Kelly on board for Operation Stardust. Yeah. And he goes, you're going to be part of the Delaz fleet. And then they get into a fist fight or whatever, and, and Ko, you know, runs away. He sees Nina, and he's like, I gotta do something. He runs away again. Have you noticed that Ko's, like, problem-solving strategy is just run away? It's very appropriate for perhaps a young man of his age. So now not only does he know that he's a Xeon pilot, but he also knows that he's going to participate in Operation Stardust, probably with the mobile armor, Isaac, because why else would you be um, fixing it? <laughs> so then, then what does he do? He runs back to Kelly and helps him fix it. Kelly's going to use it to kill all of Ko's friends. <laughs> yeah, and maybe even Ko. So it's it's peak stupidity, but I think I think that whole, you know, pilot to pilot, warrior to warrior logic was what they were really hoping we'd we'd understand and kind of nod our heads at. So, yeah, I guess it makes sense in that very primitive type thinking where oh, you know, well, we both need to fight on the battlefield. So, I'll help you with your weapon and then We'll meet in combat, and thank you for saving me and looking after me. We we understand each other more, and blah, blah, blah. I agree with that if they do battle right away, if you know that you're going to be the one fighting them. It doesn't make sense, though, for you to fix it and be like, all right, well, good luck. Like, for all Ko knows, he's never going to see this guy. But then in the next episode, Isaac... Ko's in the ship, and they get the alert that a mobile armor's attacking, and Ko goes, oh no, I wonder if it's Kelly. <laughs> I wonder, Ko. I wonder. What if? What if it's Kelly? Do you think it's Kelly? I think it might be him, Ko. In, in Ko's defense, I'm sure maybe he was thinking, apparently Shima and her, her, her little assistant were thinking the same too, there's no way a one-armed man's gonna pilot a, a mobile armor. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Co was probably like, okay, this guy's a fanatic. Sure, I'll, I'll help this guy out. He wants to build this thing for the enemy. Whatever, I'm a warrior too. I, I can understand. <laughs> so yeah, maybe he did really assume that, well, Shima's going to send somebody to pilot it. <laughs> Some Somebody I don't know, and then I'll blow it out of the sky because I'm in the latest and best from Anaheim Electronics. And, you know, this thing is very old from the one-year war. But there's no guarantee that he was going to fight it. That's my point. Like, yeah. he's just giving someone else a bad day by fixing it. Yeah. It ended up that he fought it, but he had no guarantee that, that was going to happen. Uh, again, our, our characters don't make the best decisions. Wait wait till we get to Nina Purpleton. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And yeah, so again, I think Kelly's wife slash girlfriend, Latura, here is probably the second best voice actor in this show. I feel like she really sold it. She was, at this point, Co has helped Kelly fix the thing. She's yelling at Kelly. She's like, why did you make friends with the Federation soldier? And she is pissed. She, like, throws his helmet at him. Like, I feel like it's overshadowed by Co's stupidity by helping him fix the mobile armor. Yeah. But the whole Kelly and Latura thing is, is pretty tragic, and I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Like, that, that voice actress really sold it. She did a great job. Yeah, it is overshadowed, and it, you do forget about her as the series goes on, but a very tragic end to uh, Kelly and, of course, to her, the, the love of her life as well. Oh, Isaac, there was so two things about episode seven that I wanted to point out. Ko kind of wimps out on asking Nina out to the movies oh, or God. something. <laughs> that was excruciatingly painful yeah, to watch. I felt so bad for Nina, and I guess our friend did too, waiting in the hallway. <laughs> yes, like, yes. You idiot. You, you didn't even pay for the tickets. <laughs> Keith did. Just give them to Nina. <laughs> Co is just the worst listeners. I just I can't I can't do it with Co. It's very rare that we have such a um a nincompoop. <laughs> yeah, he's almost in his own category as far as Gundam protagonists go. I think he might be. I'll say this about him though. He he does have a bit of an arc, so good for him. Man, does he start low. <laughs> it's a high arc, Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> there can't be any Co fans. Comment below if like seriously if you're a Co fan. You can't be. That's why everyone's a Gato fan cuz Gato's pretty awesome. <laughs> Did you notice that the name of the movie on the ticket is the, also the name of the episode, The Shining Blue Fire, except it's misspelled to be The Shining Blue Fire? Yeah, I know. And all that. I can think about is that episode of The Simpsons where <laughs> Willie talks to Bart about The Shining, and Bart goes, don't you mean The Shining? And Willie goes, no, The Shining. You don't want to get sued, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was reading that. I was like, I don't think that's how you spell Shining. And then I was like, <laughs> no, they messed it up. I don't know how, but they messed it up. <laughs> The other thing I thought was cool about episode seven, Isaac, is, and again, this is something that you may not catch on the first watch, you may have to go back and, and realize what just happened, is when Shima goes and talks to the Anaheim guy, and I, now I'm realizing that I don't even know the Anaheim guy's name, I don't even know if they ever say it, but... It's, um, it's Corporate McTrader. <laughs> <laughs> That's his name. <laughs> he says, I don't want any problems on Luna, and she says, well, we would benefit if you gave us more, better mobile suits. <laughs> She's so rude at every encounter, like when the guy meets her, <laughs> when they're talking in his office. Like this guy has like the thickest skin, right? Everything like goes off his back. Like what, what's it called? Like like one off a duck's back. <laughs> I mean, he must be getting paid a lot at some stage of this, right? Yeah. He, he's always smiling and keeping his hands folded and like, oh, sure, whatever you want. <laughs> Two things here. One, she says something very profound, which she says, because he's ranting to her about how he doesn't want problems on Luna. And she says, well, it's really you Lunarians that throw the world into chaos. And I was like, that's kind of true, because Anaheim plays both sides for years. Like, they are the source of so much of this of these problems. 
after hearing that line and that scene, I almost want like a Luna side story where we dive into how Anaheim's been manipulating the Federation and Xeon and how, you know, for, for many decades, they really were milking this thing for all it was worth until they got outcompeted by like SNRI. The other thing about this scene is that he does, he says, okay, you know, she, she put in the request for mobile suits. So he promises her one that's just about to be rolled out. It's going to turn out to be her suit called the Gabura Tetra. But before it's that, it used to be the GP4, or Unit 4, which does have a model kit, Isaac. It's not a master grade, but it's a reborn 100, and it looks pretty cool. I like it. I almost feel like they mentioned it too early, right? Because we don't see it until literally almost the end of the show. Yeah, it's got to be the last three episodes, not before that, I don't think. Yeah, I wish we saw it almost immediately after, right? That would have made more sense, but it's shown all too briefly. Yeah, I could live with the timing if they had at least just shown it more. Yeah. There could have been a whole episode where he fought Shima and they drew it out a little bit longer. Or maybe even, you know, if Gato dueled her or something. I don't know. But uh, the Valvaro fight actually happens, Isaac. <laughs> the guy, I don't remember his name, but the little grunt that, Z- that Shima sent to go pay off Kelly to just take the Valvaro instead of having him pilot it, that's kind of what pushed him over the edge, right? And he, he's like, well... I'm just going to go try to kill the Gundam, and they'll have to take me back. Did you love how Shima just sentenced that guy to death by sending him <laughs> out to try to confront the Valvaro, and Kelly just ran him over? Like, that was the be- one of the best deaths in the series. <laughs> to an extent, he earned it, right? Cause he did. He did. Shima didn't let on at all that he wasn't going to pilot it, that, that Kelly was not going to no. pilot the Valvaro. Mm-hmm. So this idiot really tipped, the, tipped his hand way too early. He should have paid... You know, have Kelly actually take the Valvaro out to the fleet, and then, right. you know, once he climbs aboard a ship or something, they can do the swap. Right, which was no doubt the plan, except this guy. Yeah. I'm sure Shima's also upset because this reflects badly on her, too, right? Because we're, we're going to lose right. the Valvaro, and that was kind of the whole reason I made this trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to your point, you know, how do you think the, the laws would have done if he had both the Valvaro and the Noise Eel? Because um, I got to imagine mobile armors are hard to come by these yeah. days. I think there's uh, definitely an increased chance the Albion got taken out. Yeah. Ultimately, though, I don't think it would have changed really anything. Yeah, I think maybe some of our main characters would have died. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the operation, it worked in the sense that everything happened as it should. It's just it didn't yeah. have the desired outcome that Delaz wanted, right? So The solar system control ship might have gotten taken out earlier. I, yeah. I would have loved to have seen how uh, Kelly and Gatto fight together. They might have been just an unstoppable storm. Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. We'll never know. But the Valvaro is so armored, it can fly through a Zaku. <laughs> it didn't have. I laughed out loud at that one. I was like, oh, I, for- I totally forgot about that. that was great. I'm surprised that guy didn't just get into his suit, go out, and then contact Kelly and say, hey, change of plans. Uh, we're flying back as a group. <laughs> so, yeah, shut the situation down, right? Kelly like- would have been like, oh, okay, there was a change of plans. All right, I'll... I'll go along with you guys. You know, she was not going to say anything to him at that point, right? De-escalate the situation. Yeah, just follow us, you know. <laughs> that would, Yeah, everybody would have won at that point, but no. The only other thought I have on that is, did they get the noise eel because they didn't have the Valvaro? Ooh. Because if I remember right, Axis dropped off the noise eel, right, as like a gift. Yeah. Huh. That's an interesting point. So maybe Axis had that in reserve, and then they heard about the Valvaro, or Delaz said told Axis what happened, and then they're like, "We got you covered." <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty good headcanon, Brian. I like that. That's interesting. 
I do like the thought of having both of them fly around. Now I wish that's how the series went. <laughs> yeah, right? Do that in like the manga. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the correct version of it. Stardust Memory. Boy, was that that, that was no picnic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Isaac's director's yeah. cut. Now, in terms of characters, Isaac, I really only have some comments on Ko here. From what I remembered of the series... I was not a big co-fan in two respects. One, I just didn't like him. And then two, I didn't understand why he was the pilot of Unit 1. After watching it a second time, I now understand why he's the pilot of Unit 1. But I'm still not impressed with him as a pilot. Why? Well, I know I, I understand why he's the pilot. Because if I was Nina, I wouldn't have given it to anyone on the fourth team either. Based on their behavior. Right. But again, as him as a pilot... I made a pro and cons list, Isaac. To pros. He technically did win the duel with Mancha. He's not a like Mancha. He did well against the Kimberlite forces. He puts effort into maintaining the Gundam. And he did kill Kelly Lazner in a creative way by, you know, using the, the core fighter. But after that, he kind of just seems like he gets lucky a lot. I, I still don't really think he's that great of a pilot. Gato let him go in the first battle, took pity on him. He was dead to rights in the duel with Mancha. He knowingly took Unit 1 out for use in space when he shouldn't have. That's very reckless. Uh, when he killed Shima's first Gelgug Marine grunt, he did it by accident. Do you remember that? He shot him, and Shima was surprised that the guy got killed. And then Ko went, oh, I got him? <laughs> like, what? He wasn't even like aiming right or something. Or moving right. <laughs> he got lit up by Shima. You know, again, he knowingly helps the enemy repair mobile armor. <laughs> He, you know, he, he can't even ask out Nina, so I don't think he's a great pilot at this stage. More than that, I'm, I'm still confused about Nina's, we haven't talked about this yet, about Nina's ability to fall in love with Ko, especially if she likes Gato, because they're very different individuals, and especially how hot and cold she is with Ko, right? She goes from this sort of unknowing, vague interest in Ko to complete infatuation to all of a sudden shunning him, I guess because she doesn't want to admit it, and then to full-on sorrow and remorse after he gets beat up by Shima. But then she goes cold to him again once he can't ask her out. Like, like what is her deal? And, like, why are they even together? It's almost toxic in a way. You know, the whole back and forth that they do. They're really only brought together by circumstances, right? I, I think so, yeah. If they didn't have the Gundam, uh, these two no. people don't have any business being together, I don't no, think. No, there's so many points where they don't even like each other, really. Or at least it seems that way, right? Yeah. yeah he gets mad at her. You know, I mean, oh, God, wait till the last half. <laughs> uh, she she even starts, like, saying, oh, maybe I'll go with Mancha and all that stuff. Yeah. God, it's it's just such a mess. Yes, children. <laughs> I think this series is great. I think that's just my biggest problem with it so far, is I dislike the protagonist, Ko, and I dislike, you know, I'll call it main character B in, in Nina, who also happens to be a love interest. So, right, I mean, you got three main characters here, right? You got Ko, Nina, and Gato. Yeah, actually, we do cut back and forth to Gato a lot and see what's going on with him. So it's majority co because, you know, good guy, protagonist and all that, Federation, clearly not a new type. Um, (laughs) Maybe Gato's a new type? Well, we'll never know. Even Nina does start developing her own little tangents because other than that, we're not going to see much of Burning anymore. We never see a lot of Keith, (laughs) and that's about it. Right. It's just so weird to me because I think everyone else, their character is really good in this show. Like the Kelly Lazner Latura thing, mm-hmm. that was really good. Yeah, Gato on screen is always great. Delaz is always good. I feel like everyone else, you really understand their motivations, except Ko yeah. and Nina. But Ko and Nina are like so important. Like 
they're so the main for focus of the story it's just it's it's odd how like that one goes wrong but all the other ones go well even the keith and mora thing ends up being like a pleasant surprise right yeah i think that was done well though because we saw so little of it right right like there's there's maybe like 30 seconds of screen time that imply that they had a budding romance going on in the background and right. it works because it was in right. the background the yes. the co nina thing never worked because that's that's just par for the course how gundam is i i can't think of any gundam romance that was done well or that's memorable Ooh, I think you're going to get a lot of hate mail oh, now. <laughs> Who's going to come out of the woodwork? Like, uh, Wing fans going to talk about uh, Hero and Relena? Well, I think you got, like... Uh, Who? You got Camille in, in 4. I think a lot of people love Camille in 4. Uh, maybe. Who else? <laughs> it doesn't um, happen in Gundam, is really my point. It almost <laughs> never happens. And if it does, if, if the whole romance plots do show up, they're done poorly. Hmm. Okay, that's Isaac's stake in the ground for today, <laughs> listeners. He always has to poke you a little bit in the ribs. <laughs> so I mean, back me. Well, wh- when does it work? Maybe Gundam X, but but that that was like almost platonic. <laughs> I like Domon and Rain. I thought those was okay. This is clearly much more serious in tone than that, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Well, that's why that's why I think uh, Camille and, and Four are good. You know, Amuro and Lala. There's not enough development there to. No. That happens probably too quickly. Really, um, really, no one in Amro's life. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the problem, right? That's you know, Lala's dead. So, well, how about you know, branching into Crossbone a little bit, Sea Book and Cecily? No, because <laughs> because that was just so short and rushed. That was very much tell okay. don't show because you know we they told us how long they'd been together and all that and mm, that's fair. Okay, she joined the fascists and then she didn't want to stay with them and then she joined Sea Book at the end. It, it was a it's a mess. I'm not saying they're the best, and they're definitely messy. This one certainly isn't good, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But listeners, if you if you love the Co Nina thing, if you can explain this to me, I would love that. Please leave me a detailed essay, uh, setting me straight on the Co Nina relationship. So it's a hot mess. <laughs> Isaac, I wanted to talk about the Mecca briefly here because, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think this show has maybe the best combination of fluid hand drawn animation and Mecca designs in the entire series i can't think of another one maybe 0080 but just in terms of animation quality and design wise you got some heavy heavy hitters here so you've got three great mecha designers here you got shoji kawamori who made macross he designed the gpo1 and the gpo2 so you're already leading off with an all-star there i mean you're obviously a, a unit 2 fan right isaac yeah it's dare i say at the time of its release well, never mind. I was about to say there's a Psycho Gundam too, but I was saying the only villainous mobile suit design, the only villainous Gundam design. I mean, yeah, okay, right next to Psycho Gundam, I could see that. I would imagine that for a Gundam, you probably even think that the Unit One is pretty decent. Yeah, actually, I was looking at it and I was like, that's pretty cool. I actually like it more than Unit Two because those those ice cream cones that they put on its back, <laughs> those are a little silly. I don't like the look of them. They don't really come off as believable in space yeah something was lost between that and unit one <laughs> and then you also have mika akitaka and i'm only talking first seven episodes here isaac so the second one is you've got mika akitaka doing the gelgug marines the valvaro the draw seas also the unit unit four which is not shown in the show but does exist but mika akitaka also designed the noise isaac man Nothing but great designs coming from him. You know what I notice about these designs? 
Mobile Suit Gundam to Zeta Gundam was a big change in designs, right? Like a huge upgrade, mm-hmm. multiple levels. Yep. This feels like it's very much a continuation of Zeta, just much more refined in its designs. It very much captures yep. that same look. Yeah. A third leap of like militarization. Yeah. A second leap, I exactly, guess. Exactly, yeah. Well, I, I think the coolest thing about Unit 2, though, is the, the shoulder pads. <laughs> I love how those massive boosters kind of rotate down and then it just launches into the air. You know, it needs those. It, it, not a lot of them have boosters on the shoulders like that, especially that size. But this thing's so damn heavy with its shield, it needs them and the bazooka. And just those those thick feet. Huh? Yeah, that's, that's like it. the opposite of the heels that you hate. Exactly. Oh, we need more more big shoes. Give me the big boots, not the heels. <laughs> Even the Albion, I think, causes you to like the Pegasus class, right? Yeah, the Albion is, it's such a beautiful design. It's probably my favorite Pegasus design. It's got the perfect proportions for the bridge and the main body and then those two cool long hangar bays. It doesn't get too wacky or anything like that with its proportions. It's it's really probably the perfect design, I think. It's definitely up there in terms of the ones that made it to an animated Mm -hmm. work. I think there are some cooler ones in manga only, but I mean, you know, you can always go find a a cool manga design, right? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's not exactly the same. Definitely. And then the third mecha designer, Isaac, who needs no introduction, but is Hajime Katoki. I believe this was his first Gundam series that he worked on. So he contributed the Jim Cannon 2, the Powered Jim, the Jim Custom, Jim Type C, the Dom Troppins, and that prototype Rick Dom's Wii. Oh, and the Zommel. Can't forget the Zommel. So, and the Dom Troppins. He gave you the Dom Troppin, Isaac. I mean, what more needs to be said? I mean, <laughs> not much more. The Dom Troppin's the best design from this show, right? <laughs> that's that's a tough call. Best design from the show overall. I don't know. I thought you would have picked the Noise Eel, but... Uh, ooh. Mobile suit design, Dom Troppin, mobile armor. Oh, Noise there you go. Eel. You got out of it. <laughs> you know, I mean, not, not to get ahead of ourselves, but the Dendrobium was pretty much the Federation's attempt to make a mobile armor in a way, right? Yeah. They were like, well, the mobile arm itself has limits, but what if we just put a mobile suit into something that's like <laughs> like a mobile arm? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't really argue with that. The Troppin's really cool. If I had to choose a, a second place, probably... Whew, the Powered GM is probably pretty cool. I don't know, those Gelgu Marines, Isaac, are pretty cool. I like those a lot. Yeah, yeah, they were pretty great. I mean, I'm not a fan too much of the color because it's too close to Gato's color scheme. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the Gelgo Marines overall just seem like such a cool attack force. You know, I wish we saw more of them. All right, Isaac. Well, how do you feel going into the back half here? And, and what would you give this first half? Oh, man. We already know what I'd give it. i give this <laughs> six out of five Haros. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because 0083 is my favorite series. But going into this next half, I'm ready for a lot of great times, some sad times, and of course, epic mobile suit combat. Yeah, I think I would give it. Uh, I'm slightly less bullish than oh you. Uh, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give it a four out of five. Look again. I think the animation and the mech design, basically everything around two of our main characters, is great, and I love it. But these two main characters of Ko and Nina did just really bring it down for me. So. Um, that's why we, we lose a Haro on that for me, or I'll do it, you know, I'll eight out of 10, whatever, four out of five, but I'm excited for the back half. Just, I know we get to see the battle between unit one and unit two. We get to see actually operation Stardust happen. We get to see the solar system again. 
as well as the Noia Zeal Isaac. It's, it's always a good time when you see the Noia Zeal. Final battle and the mind blown of the uh, the conspirators. The last thing I'll say, Isaac, is what I missed from this version that was good about the compilation film was that extra footage in the beginning where they show them taking the colonies. Yeah, the big foreshadowing. That would have been cool. But um, yeah, I, I can see how some people think it's not unnecessary, right? Because we're going to see colonies being moved later. It's a bit of a spoiler, yeah. right? I suppose if you show it in the beginnings, so maybe that's why they didn't or, do or that. Or puzzling if you're if you're watching it before, you're like, why are they showing us colonies under construction? Correct. Yeah. You know. Yeah. If it doesn't come back for nine episodes or something, it could be a little odd. But all right, listeners. Well, Isaac, do you have any questions for them? What color would your Dom Troppen be? <laughs> Ooh, there you go. Was Admiral Cohen's idea for a nuclear-equipped Gundam just dumb from the beginning? Like, could this could not have ended well, even if it went right? <laughs> well, you got to hand it to Delaz, right? When he goes on that thing, or when he, when he does his speech, and he's like, the Federation clearly designed this to, you know, have a nuke, and they're clearly breaking the Antarctic Treaty. I was kind of like, oh, he's got you there, Federation. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, that was a bad move. Right. We're in peace, and you're building a nuke. Like, what are you doing? A nuclear-equipped gun, <laughs> what are you doing? You know? <laughs> This is clearly meant to intimidate colonies. Yeah, he caught him red-handed. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, all right, listeners, let us know. Hope you enjoyed 0083, and go check out the Mayfly of Space if you have not. Yeah. So, Isaac, take us away. All right, listeners, before you go to sleep tonight, stand next to your bed, get on your knees, put your hands together, look up at the ceiling, and hail the Delaz fleet. Good night, everybody.